friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and as we say goodbye to 2021 and look forward to what will hopefully be a wonderful year, 2022, we've produced a special show for you this week. We've featured all of the best moments from 2021 at Conversations with Consequences. We're going to touch on all sorts of topics, including the protection of the unborn, religious freedom, and a special snippet from our dear friend, Father Mike Schmitz, who will be headlining the March for Life at the end of January in Washington, D.C. Our theme for the 2022 March for Life is equality begins in the womb. Equality begins in the womb. So essentially, everybody over these past few years is in debates about the COVID-19 pandemic, about racial justice protests, about anything that has to do with equality, right? And this is these are important conversations, but we'd like to bring into that a critical element that's lacking, which is equality in the womb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why don't we talk about unborn babies when we debate about equality? since they can't speak for themselves. So our culture recognizes the inherent dignity of life, but when it comes to babies in the womb, often they're disregarded. So so we're excited to talk about, you know, disability status doesn't matter, skin color doesn't matter, socioeconomic background doesn't matter. What matters is that every life is precious and should be protected from the moment of conception. The basic... And the word agony, I don't think, is overstating it, that so many women undergo. And that, for some reason, all this other stuff, as they like to say, we can send a man to a moon, but we can't figure out how to help a woman with a child do justice at home first and also justice and work outside the home. It's totally been privatized. And abortion was, I think, at the heart of conceptualizing this agonizing question for women as a private thing that you just have to take care of by yourself. Um, and I'm not talking about having, you know, government subsidize or pay for everything. Certainly, if they do end up putting through some kind of subsidy for childcare, I'd like to see that offered equally for women who would like to stay home with their children, just as an assistance to families, not, you know, a childcare uh, allowance only for, for uh, out-of-home care. Um, it, it's just so obvious that abortion sort of crystallized this idea that interdependence, that mother-child relationship is not something that the society has to even care about at all. It's totally private. I'm a poster child for the uh, Catholics 
uh, growing up since the 1960s, all the goods and bads of, um, of what that means. I've uh, lived through that, including buying the drinking the Kool-Aid or buying the lie that women deserve abortion as health care. So I wanted to liberate women from their fertility to give them happiness and joy and peace. And I ended up practicing what I preached because you know, my daddy, uh, who was an incredible man who loved the Lord, loved Our Lady, loved the church, loved, loved our country, he also taught in, in a high school these very principles. Well, because I believed in a woman's right to choose, I went ahead and uh, learned how to terminate and abort all size babies, provide all sorts of contraception. And it was only because of my mom and dad, I think, who dedicated me to Our Lady, but also so many people out there, so many of the incredible pro-life movement, those people who are just silent, they prayed for conversion and thanks be to God through circumstances that I cannot even imagine, but through patients and through other doctors and through other people and through students, I came to my senses where I had an experience with the mother of God a few times in my life and all of a sudden it, the truth became alive and it was always about consequences, the convert, you know, I, I love the program, conversation with consequences, right? <laughs> well, it's now about the conversation of conversion, but it's not with words. It's with your heart and it's with your actions. I see what your program does, Dr. Christie. It moves me to the point that these people put their heart, the love of Christ, into what they're doing. Oh, thank and you, that's doctor. the key. I think the, the ultrasound imaging has made the, the humanity of the unborn undeniable. And uh, it's been a great help, you know, as you know, with our crisis pregnancy centers. And thank goodness for the Knights of Columbus that will donate these ultrasound machines to crisis pregnancy centers and, and give parents an opportunity to see their child. And that's been powerful in saving many, many lives. I've always been blessed to have St. Joseph as a patron, and part of the reason my, well, the reason my mother named me, my, my father was killed when my mother was pregnant with me. Oh, no. And, and so my mother felt, well, St. Joseph was a really good foster father for, for Jesus, so she thought that was pretty good credentials for making oh, him my wonderful. foster father. So um, I've always had a, a great devotion to him, but I think you know, Joseph shows, you know, true manliness, true fatherhood, you know, in that he's a protector mm -hmm. of Mary and Jesus. And, you know, his life is constantly being interrupted. I think he must have been afraid to go to sleep at night at one point because he was getting these dreams with yes. <laughs> from the Lord. But, and they would interrupt his life, but I mean, we, he says nothing in the scripture, but we see his actions. He moves quickly and decisively uh, to protect Mary, to protect Jesus. And that's what we need all of us to do today. And I think there's a special message for men uh, that we need to exercise this true uh, paternity uh, to be protectors of, of mothers and children both. Oh, you're so right, uh, Your Excellency. It's such a beautiful example. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Cornelion. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's very kind of you to share your very valuable time with us. There are a couple things we wanted to talk to you about. One of them is an op-ed that you recently published in the Washington Post, where you pushed back against recent statements made by Catholic politicians who have denounced uh, a new state law in Texas that prohibits abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Why? It's a very powerful piece that you wrote, and and it's I know it speaks to the hearts of many Catholics who are watching in disbelief as politicians who tout their Catholic faith, who talk about how important their faith is to them, at the same time are very confident in attacking a beautiful piece of legislation like the one in Texas that protects babies. What drove you to write this very powerful piece? I've been very concerned about the growing rhetoric around abortion and the failure of so many people to recognize just how evil it is. And whenever there's any sort of even reasonable, minimal kind of regulation that there's this vehement reaction and they keep getting more and more radical. Now we see it happening again with the Texas heartbeat law. How can anyone find it unreasonable that if a human being has a heartbeat to consider a human being alive, uh, that's the, the sign of death right at the end of life. There's mm-hmm. no heartbeat. And so we see this radical pushback to codifying it in the law. And, and now even before the heartbeat bill, uh, excluding the Hyde Amendment, and the budget appropriations. So I think the problem is people not recognizing truly how evil abortion is, even though the protagonists know that they're wrong. It's so clear that they know that they're wrong because they will not answer a simple, straightforward question about life in the world. They'll change the topic or they just won't reply. So that already indicates that they know their position is indefensible. So to highlight uh, how are we as faith leaders supposed to respond to this, I use the example of an evil we can all easily agree on now, but at one time was not agreed upon. And I'm old enough to remember uh, what uh, the civil rights movement and the pre-civil rights out there was disagreement about it, and Archbishop Rummel was a very uh, courageous uh, pioneer in, in pushing for civil rights against the resistance of some powerful people, including classic Catholics in the society there. And he was accused of the same things that we hear people say nowadays about bishops are meddling in, in politics, and we should stay in our own lane, and, and all this. And I wanted to show that he went so far as to excommunicate those three prominent Catholics, to show that Penal sanctions are not like a relic of sort of a medieval church or something like that, but uh, they are a tool to be used to help bring about the conversion of the Aaron Catholic and, and repair scandal. So I wanted to make that very clear on an issue that network everyone agrees upon, but didn't back then. Archbishop, oh. that example that you gave was so powerful, and I learned a lot about that time in the church and just the extraordinary measures that Archbishop Rummel did to desegregate his diocese. And it was such a good reminder of how often the church truly is at the forefront of these important civil rights battles. That example and and this example of um, what's happening with the debate over the Texas law has led people to use this phrase they call weaponizing the Eucharist. Can you speak to that? Is is that something that the church is doing? Is that a fair categorization? Who's really weaponizing the Eucharist when we have politicians who are claiming to be devout Catholics and going to communion, but they're Define, it's not just a matter of defining church teaching, it's defining a fundamental human right. So that's really weaponizing it. Now, that's why I gave the example of Archbishop Rummel. No one, people then, 
would have seen it that way. No one now accuses him of having weaponized the Eucharist when he issued those excommunications. And you know, Pope Francis recently issued a this book, Six of the Code of Canon Law, is a section that ha- has to do with penal law, and he revised it to make it more more usable, easily a- applicable, and stronger. And in the letter with which he promulgated it, he speaks about the need to apply uh, disciplinary sanctions, and he even says there was great danger of great damage done in the past by a failure to appreciate this close relationship between the exercise of charity and recourse when necessary to disciplinary sanctions. And he goes so far as to say negligence on the part of a bishop in resorting to the penal system is a sign that he has failed to carry out his duties honestly and faithfully. So the whole point of this, and he, he, he lays out the three aims of no sanctions, the restoration of the demands of justice, the correction of the guilty party, and repair of scandals. So nobody accuses Rummel of having weaponized or, or politicizing the issue. And, you know, civil rights movement was led by by faith leaders, and and that's what he was doing. Your Excellency, isn't it true that when a politician is corrected by his bishop, when it happens rarely, but it happens, isn't that bishop, isn't he helping the politician to understand his or her participation in a moral evil, which has grave consequences for that own person's soul? It's not just about how the politician is affecting other souls and and other people and leading them to sin through scandal, but also saving the politician from that weight of that terrible moral evil that he carries. Precisely. That's what, uh, again, these three aims. One of them, uh, Pope Francis says, the correction correction of the guilty party is to move the air and cap the air in a very dangerous spiritual situation. And this this is not uh, conducive to their eternal salvation. We want to bring them to conversion and to uh, being in a spiritually whole whole place and in the right place before God. So that that certainly is a primary consideration. But, uh, along with the other two. Repair of scandal, this causes great scandal when people prominent in public life defy the, any kind of church teaching, let alone something that has to do with basic human rights. The third, and so repairing scandal, and then the demands of justice here. We have a whole segment of our of our population that's not even being accorded the right to life. Again, if we look back to the pre-civil rights South, I mean, we shudder in horror, we can't believe it happened that lynchings were carried out, and although it wasn't technically legal, it was condoned, and people did it with impunity, and uh, and it was, you know, a wink and a nod. Uh, this is horrendous. And yet now we have that abortion is, is on the same level. They both involve killing innocent human life. And here we have politicians not only winking and nodding and condoning, they want to make sure it's legal all throughout pregnancy. It's widely and easily accessible. And now to get the government to pay for it. Archbishop, you write in your piece so eloquently, you say you cannot be a good Catholic and support expanding a government approved right to kill innocent human beings. The answer to crisis pregnancies is not violence, but love for both mother and child. And I so appreciated this point because as all of us who are pro-life advocates know, we're constantly accused of not caring about uh, mothers and of being pro-birth, things like that. You talk a little bit about this in your piece, but you shed light on the truth about this, that the bill does earmark money. And and no doubt, you know, in your own diocese, you see incredible amount of time and money and volunteer efforts that go into truly giving women an empowered choice 
space and helping them both to thrive. That's their typical empty rhetoric that's not based in reality. The ones that are really giving women choice, alternatives to abortion, are, are people of faith. They're the ones running these life crisis pregnancy clinics. And that's why I'm so happy with what Texas did in channeling all that money into their alternatives to abortion uh, program. That's exactly what we have to be doing. Again, surrounding the woman with love and support. And uh, it's people of faith who are doing that. Those people who claim to be pro-women should be applauding Texas for doing this. They're giving women real choice, real support for, for making a happy choice, a choice for life. And who are the ones who help women who have gone through that terrible experience to come to healing? Uh, She's not even, so often, not even allowed to talk about it. She would be shut down just to, and so that pain leads away at her. It's people of faith that are helping to bring her to a place of healing. So to be truly pro-life is being pro-woman. Uh, of all the terrible things that are happening in, in Afghanistan, that the top of the list of most people's concerns is not religious freedom or what's happening on the religious front. But I know it's your concern at RFI and it's our concern at the Catholic Association. And of course, our listeners are very thoughtful when it comes to religious issues so that we could talk about this because Afghanistan is a calamity, what's going on there. But we don't want to forget about this dimension. Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with the Catholic Association. And I will say that you're exactly right that it's a dire time for uh, religious minorities, but that's not something new in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, Afghanistan has never been good on these issues. And despite hundreds of thousands of outsiders from around the world, mainly from the West on the ground there, a trillion dollars spent trying to stabilize and modernize the country. The simple fact of the matter is, is Afghanistan is always on the top five list of religious freedom violators by the U.S. government and by other it is a place where it is very dangerous to convert to Christianity or to be a part of a religious minority. Have people in the last uh, couple decades since the United States has been embroiled there, have people lived openly as Christians in Afghanistan? So foreigners have been able to publicly act as Christians in Afghanistan, but all the way back to the early 2000s, all the way through 2021. It is illegal to convert. The laws are draconian for these types of things. The Particularly at the local level, if an Afghan citizen were to publicly share Christianity, that would be considered a violation of the law. They could be imprisoned and all, all sorts of terrible things happen to them. If someone were to choose to convert to Christianity or another faith other than Islam, they could be imprisoned, likely tortured, likely receive the death penalty. It is a terrible situation in Afghanistan with the Taliban coming, it will only get worse. Everything you're telling me is happening, was happening under the relatively benign government that's being replaced by a brutal Islamist new regime. And to give you just a sense, the Indian government has given an open visa for any Hindus and Sikhs, and there's only about 2,000 left in Afghanistan, to repatriate formally to India, and they are willing to move them as quickly as possible. The last Jew, the the last Jew that we know of, who is an indigenous Afghan, uh, shuttered the synagogue in Kabul in June and left for Israel. So these other religious minorities are packing up and leaving 
because they see no future for themselves. What other religious minorities might exist in Afghanistan? Well, the main religious minority in Afghanistan are Shia Muslims, mm -hmm. and the majority of them are actually one of the principal ethnic groups in Afghanistan, a minority uh, but large group called the Hazaras. Many people became familiar with them through movies like Kite Runner and things like that. It's estimated they make up 10 to 15 percent of the population. The Taliban was very aggressive towards them as seeing the Shias as apostates back in the 1990s. And that's the group that will, if we're going to see kind of widespread persecution, there's millions of Hazara. They will be the ones that take it on the chin first and foremost, because the Taliban loathes them. So what we are mostly going to be seeing if we see religious violence is Muslim on Muslim violence. That's so. And unfortunately, I mean, this is a story across the Muslim world. The greatest threat to Muslims is often violent Islamist Muslims. In northern Nigeria, that's the case. In parts of the Middle East, that's the case. In Central Asia, Afghanistan and Pakistan, groups like the Taliban, groups like Al-Qaeda, groups, uh, other terrorist groups, they turn on their own neighbors first. And of course, much smaller communities like the tiny Christian minority, of course, they're under threat as well because Saudi Arabia is the home of Sunni Islam and Iran is the home of Shia Islam. And these mm -hmm. divisions go way back. Iraq was fractured because a part of its population was Sunni and a part of it was Shia, hence the religious warfare there. Now, the Taliban in specific is a homegrown group. And the Taliban was a response to all of the corruption and lawlessness that was going on in Afghanistan in the 1990s. But what they did was they imposed a draconian form of law and order based on their understanding of the early centuries of Islam. They imposed it on their neighbors to fight the corruption, the violence and things that was a part of Afghan society in the 1990s. So these are uh, deep fractures that go back many hundreds of years. What do they disagree on? Well, it's a the that that fundamental difference had to do with the succession after the Prophet Muhammad, and should that succession be essentially an election, a consensual decision about who the next leaders would be? This was a shortly after Muhammad's death, or should that succession be through the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad, who would be the leaders in Islam? Essentially, there was a, a, a fracture over that. It was a leadership decision, but over the years. There have been, you give it a thousand years, and so you do get changes, some theological differences that are significant between the two. But that also gets tied up in region and different ethnicities, different parts of the world and stuff. But that, it, it goes back to a leadership crisis shortly after the death of Muhammad. So the Taliban are famous for their, for their, for the brutal way that they adhere and make others adhere to this very strict uh, form of Islam. Um, are they, are they the strictest or most or most brutal sect um, of those we know? The Taliban was brutal, and they've shown themselves to be tenacious fighters uh, as well. They are, yes, they have been among the more brutal groups. I'd say that certainly there's a, an entire another step with a group like ISIS that took uh, gratuitous violence, put it on television in ways that they were they're trying to 
shock people. Oh, videotaping crucifixions, videotaping beheadings and things. So ISIS took it to a whole nother step. I think taking a step back to Afghanistan's Taliban, again, in the 1990s, when they started to take over large parts of Afghanistan, they looked at the at, at literal texts and their understandings of those early centuries of kind of harsh frontier justice in Islam. And they said, okay, we are going to cut off a hand for stealing. We are going to make women be covered with the, the burqa from head to foot. We are going to impose these the laws and the regulations as we understand them from that time back in that time period. And it was a very, very, very severe form of their understanding of justice. Brutal. So as the Afghanis are facing the Taliban retaking over their country, it's not just the religious minorities who are afraid, but anyone who has been living in a more in a more Western, Occidental way. An average citizen, including many families, I think, who would be involved with the Taliban and who would think that they're theologically right. Nonetheless, most people want basic security in their community, and they want to be able to live their lives as they understand it under the dictates of their faith. And millions and millions of Afghans have been able to do that in a more modernized, construct that that faces westward and the taliban at least for women and at least for minorities and for some youth there's tens of millions of afghans who they look at the taliban and say they represent things that put make me a second class citizen that don't respect my rights under the law and so all of those people right now are wondering what is my future i know what the taliban used to be like i know what it's like in the villages that they've controlled that have been heavy-handed what does the future look like? And it does not look good. Eric, I read that um, when that the Taliban moved into Kabul, one of the first things they did was to paint out ads for women's beauty products, for instance. And I'm I'm trying to picture them, but I imagine it's the kind of thing we have here. No, a woman pouting with her lipstick, maybe. I was also, I was thinking about that and how they're going to to reject anything that the that the West has been trying to, to convince Afghanis that is positive about our culture. And I was thinking of another image of just last June, the American embassy in Afghanistan put up a gay pride flag. I was wondering what you think about so many years spent in Afghanistan. Have we been able to have we been able to work with them as far as, as helping them understand religious liberty and religious and how how it benefits everyone from that, sort of that Judeo-Christian perspective that we bring to the issue? Well, that's a loaded set of questions in terms of just how much significance there is. I, w- I would say this, first of all, one element of practical religious liberty is demonstrating respect respect for the religious values of those even who you disagree with. And what what has happened with the State Department over the last couple of years is really, it's as if we've wanted to jam our finger into the eye of more conservative societies exactly. by flying yes. these big rainbow flags. Mm-hmm. And it's it's offensive. It's clearly offensive to the, to the majority of the symptoms of the majority of people in those countries or we try to dictate to them changes to their lives and their society that are part of the authentic lived religion that's been there for a
a long period of time. Now, it's one thing to to meet with them and to try to convince them if we have a strong moral position on something. But it's another thing to put up a, a symbol, which is like a slap in the face. It, it's a, it's That's not diplomacy. Mm-hmm. That's some sort of virtue signaling. And so it's been very disappointing to see the United States behave in that way in the last couple of years at various embassies, literally around the world, but particularly in more cons- uh, theologically conservative societies. And what it does is, frankly, it totally erodes the ground that we have to have a very sig- sincere, a significant adult conversation, perhaps on those issues, with another country if we're just going to slap them in the face to have a, a, a photo, a press release to give to a domestic constituency in the United States. So we, we didn't behave very responsibly when we did that. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And for the rest of the show, my colleague and good friend at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, is joining me. We are very happy and very blessed to have Father Mike Schmitz with us. He's the Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries in the Diocese of Duluth, Minnesota. Um, You don't have to be in Duluth, Minnesota to have heard of Father Mike Schmitz. Many, many people know him from his online homilies, his books. Just last year, he wrote a book called How to Make Great Decisions. What a wonderful title and thought. His podcast, which is very popular at the Ferguson household, Maureen was telling me, super popular podcast with all her kids. And he's also speaking at the Seek conference this year. We want to talk to him about all those facets of his character and of his work. We thank him very much for being here. Thank you, Father Schmidt. Absolutely. Thank you for hosting me. Father, I know you, you know, our time isn't endless and we want to talk to you about a lot of things, but <laughs> I really enjoyed, I've, I have the, a copy of your book, How to Make Great Decisions, and I was leafing through it. I'm going to hand it to at least four of my children. <laughs> When I'm done with it. That's great. Um, And there are three questions that you suggested we ask ourselves, and they really rang uh, true for me, and they make a lot of sense. Am I in a state of grace? Am I performing my daily duties? And did I pray today? How did you come to focus um, making great decisions on these three particular questions? I think that's a really great question because I, I can't remember. I think what it was was uh, a matter of kind of just doing some of the, the logic of the spiritual life and that logic of the spiritual life being, okay, primarily by our baptism, by virtue of our baptism, we're brought into, we have, we, we receive God's sanctifying grace. And so we're brought into a unique relationship with the Lord as made into his sons and daughters and living in covenantal relationship with him. I mean, this is big, these big fancy theological words, which I know you get, and sure, I'm sure your listeners will understand as well. But that sense of like, okay, wait, so I've been brought into this new kind of relationship with God, but I also it's possible for me to wound or break that relationship, uh, to severely mortally damage that relationship by uh, mortal sin. And so first question I need to ask is, okay, is that, is that relationship intact or have I mortally wounded, wounded it? And if so, I need to get in a state of grace. So I need to go to confession. Um, the second piece being, um, I also know that so many of the saints have talked about, and great spiritual writers have talked about the key for holiness is not uh, doing miracles. The key of holiness is not doing incredible penances or, or, or great works. The key of holiness is, am I doing God's will? And so the next question would be, am I doing my daily duties? Because where do we find our daily duties? Well, or where, sorry, where do we find God's will? We find God's will in doing um, the, the kind of ordinary 
things that we've committed to that our vocation demands of us or that our those people were responsible for have asked of us or asked of us or that we've committed to so that second piece being like okay am i doing that am i on a basic level just doing god's will for my day to day and then thirdly you know especially when it comes to um the reality that God continues to speak with us, He's in. if we're in communion with Him, right, in covenantal relationship with Him, and we're striving after holiness, uh, if He wants me to turn to the left or turn to the right or stop or slow down or keep moving forward, then I need to be intentionally listening to His voice. Um, yes, of course, He can speak to us, regardless, even if we're trying not to listen. He can do that, but it would make the most sense that we would be listening, and that means praying. And so they, it kind of seemed like these are the... These really three key but incredibly simple and necessary things that we need to be doing if we're going to be uh, pursuing holiness and being the people that God has created and redeemed us to be. Father Mike, it's such an incredible treat for us to have you on. I first heard about you from my teenage children who used to come home from their high school <laughs> youth group, and they would say, Mom, you got to see a video of Father Mike's on all kinds of topics. So at the beginning of the new year, they told me about your podcast, and so we've been yeah. listening to your new podcast. Sometimes we do it during dinner, sometimes after dinner, and your new podcast is Topping the Charts even the secular yeah. church, which is unbelievable. And we would love to know, what was your inspiration in creating the Bible in a Year podcast? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Is it too late to get in on it if you didn't start at the new year? And one of the questions my kids have for you, because they were incredulous that we were going to be able to have you on our show today, <laughs> they want to know, does your voice get tired reading the whole Bible to us? <laughs> That is awesome. Um, well, thank you. First, uh, that it's, yeah, I, we did not anticipate, I did not anticipate that it would, uh, the response would be what it has been. And I'm so grateful for it. I had, um, like most people, you know, over the course of the last year, you know, starting last February, March, where, um, I, not even starting last February, March, what, here's what I say. I find myself taking in most of my information through my ears. Like, um, I love reading, but I also, I fall asleep because I'm an old, becoming older and older, and um, tireder and tireder as the days go on. And so, I love reading, but I have to listen in order to get stuff, you know, or else I just fall asleep. I need to, like walk and listen to a book, or walk and listen to a podcast, or drive and listen to something. And you can't afford to fall asleep then. So, um, I thought, well, I take in so many voices um, throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of like just at all times. And I found myself not only taking in all these voices, and some of these voices were like wise people, I think, that I look up to, and I really appreciate their insight. I found myself still getting distracted by those voices and still getting distressed by those voices. Um, even if they had wise things to say, I didn't always find that they um, had the view of the worldview of Christ and, the, and the, the, that mind of Christ that, that St. Paul implores us to, to take up. Up, you know, transform by the uh, our thoughts, have our thoughts be renewed, right, by by Christ. Um, so I thought, you know, when I encounter God's word, when I hear the Bible, because I have like, you know, I bought a New Testament dramatized version, so I listen to that, and I think when I walked away from that, I always had the sense of, okay, this is true, this is good, this is beautiful, and I'm not distracted and I'm not distressed. And I thought it would be incredible to be able to go through the whole Bible, like from start to finish. Uh, and let people just press play and let it kind of just shape their minds and shape their their worldview and shape their heart. Um, and so I proposed it to Ascension and said, "Would you? what do you think about doing this podcast? And they were really excited because apparently years ago, someone had the idea, but they didn't know who to ask or when they were going to do it. 
And so I said, well, how about now? And you don't have to, it doesn't have to be me, but I would love to. Um, and so that, that started the, the ball rolling. The last two things I just want to offer is this is kind of a unique podcast or a unique Bible in a year because there's a ton of go through the Bible in 365 days out there. I mean, that's when we first did it. I said, just, Hey, let's download one of those templates and follow that. And they said, well, you know, we also published this thing called the great adventure Bible timeline created by Jeff Cavins. Why don't we base our template or our, the way we proceed throughout the course of the year off of that. So we have the, the narrative books that tell the coherent story from the very beginning to the very end. And then we can situate those other books in their context, right? So it was just it's such a, it was brilliant. And um, a bunch of the people at Ascension, they crafted it, they created it, and they put it in the right, in the right places. And that, that's been such a gift. Um, lastly, you asked, that, what, what if people haven't started yet? Is it too late? Absolutely not, because if you've ever listened to one of the, even one of the episodes, you note that I don't say today is, you know, February 23rd. I say today is day 30. Um, and so that means that even if you miss a day, miss a week, if you, even if you start at the beginning of April or even at the end of the year, your day one is your day one. And your, if you, even, you know, skipped it for a month, okay, your day 45 is day 45. And I, I love that because it means that even if you fail at being perfect, which I think all of us do, you don't have to quit. You just, okay, now this is my new day 45, that's today. And that's another thing, it's like hearing all of the stories and not just kind of the, the stories we heard when we were kids or even from the lectionary, we get to hear like, wow, this is a messier story than mm-hmm. I, I seem to have picked up over the course of these years. Indeed, Father, and not always G-rated. We discovered we had to pause oh, yeah, one time with our 10-year-old also at the table. We did have to pause one of the episodes. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but, but truly, the mm-hmm. Old Testament has always been so difficult for me to decipher. So it is so helpful the way you put things into context. And, you know, I'm curious, what what is your target audience? Because you, of course, are so dedicated to youth ministry, but I have gotten so much out of this. So did you plan this as part of your youth ministry or is this sort of for everybody? Maybe I should have thought of that. I didn't. I thought, I know people, I don't care how old they are. When I was, um, so we, we put on a junior high retreat every year or junior high camp every year. And every year we invite the junior high students from sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. I say, read your Bible every day, 10 minutes a day. That's it. Just, you know, just, and it can, it'll change your life. And I have a nephew who like took up that challenge. He started reading the Bible every day, at least 10 minutes a day without fail for the next, probably, I want to say five, four or five years. And <laughs> So it's, but then you get lost, right? So here he is as a, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grader reading the Bible and being like, okay, so I guess I kind of read the story about so and so. I don't know what to make sense of it. But I also know people who are far older than me who are saying, like, I just don't know the Bible like I feel like I should. I'm 60 years old and I've been going to Mass, but I don't know the Bible. And I've tried reading it and tried reading it and I can't get through it. And then everyone in between. And so my thought was, if you make this as easy as possible, meaning it's at most, I think there might be a couple episodes that up pushed like the 30 minute mark because there's some longer readings and like, oh, there's more complex stuff going on, but make it easy as possible. So kind of short. Secondly, all you have to do is press play and listen. And then thirdly, you have some kind of guidance. And that's what I think hopefully you're alluding to is like that sense of like someone at the end is going to say, okay, here's what you just heard. Here's one way we can make sense out of it. I'm not, I'm not claiming that I know uh, here. I, I always get a little distracted or bothered when people say, what Jesus meant here was this. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's exact all that he meant. I think one of the things Jesus could have meant was this, but uh, 
I, I don't necessarily like claiming this is what this means and it only means this. So I just try to provide a little bit of guidance at the end of every episode to just kind of once again remind us, here's where we're at. Here's what just happened. Here's what it might mean. Hmm. Father Mike, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind doing a quick little lightning round of questions with me because I, as I said, my kids were so excited to hear that you were coming on our show. And I asked them, what questions do you think I should ask Father Mike? <laughs> one, one of them even checked with a few of her friends to say, what questions? should my mom ask? So here are some of their questions. Who is your confirmation saint and why? Yep. My confirmation saint is St. Francis Xavier. Ah. And when I chose he chose him. I had read a bunch about him, and I loved two things. Two things stuck out in particular. One is that I had read that he was a track star at the University of Paris before his big conversion, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to be a track star. I don't it doesn't have to be Paris, but <laughs> I want to be a track star." And the second is because he's the patron saint of missionaries, and ever since I was in high school, I wanted to be a missionary, and uh, so those are the those are the two main reasons why I chose Francis Xavier. Okay, great. So next question: What's your favorite part of being a priest? Um, that is, that's a really good question. And, um, ultimate, oh gosh, yeah, it's such a hard question to answer though. So because, many favorite parts. Um, there are so many favorite parts. Yeah. Not because it's hard because there's no favorite parts. No, it's, it's hard because it's, 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 if I were to say one, I would think, but also this other thing. So for example, I would say, you know, offering up the mass is, um, it's, it's the greatest honor, I think anyone could ever be asked to do uh, at the same time meeting people in the sacrament of reconciliation and uh, extending to them the reconciliation and restoration of jesus christ is what an incredible honor and humbling thing to do also being able to teach people about the lord and just like let that be like this is the whole sum of your life is being able to 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 do that is like how much greater is that and then i mean i even love things like marriage prep uh just i get to be mm -hmm. in these these young couples lives in a in a critical critical moment and um try to offer uh, some kind of guidance and some kind of uh help that will hopefully get them on the right trajectory for the rest of their lives and for their kids lives and grandkids and just like this what a privileged place Mm -hmm. So there's too many things to say there's one. Okay, well, those are all um, so beautiful. Um, okay, next, how do you encourage your friends in the faith without being preachy or annoying? Good question. I think that, um, well, from the hip here, I would say it all depends on uh, what kind of relationship you have with your friends. And uh, one of the things that I find is that I Originally or initially, in, especially in high school, I just went there and, and like just talking about here's what I think is true and here's what I think is right and here's what I believe about God and kind of stuff. And, and I wouldn't have asked them for permission. And I think that one of the things that we get when it comes to, I think we, we, we as Catholics might get a little too gun shy when it comes to sharing our faith. But I think that might be because if we get it in our hearts to start sharing our faith, we do it without again, asking the permission of the people that we want to share with. Um, and so then when someone does act, ask us like, hey, what do you believe? And or or I'm going through this really rough time. And how do you make sense of this? That we're so gun shy about like, oh, I need to dance around this. I'm not willing to like really, really share the truth of what I believe and the goodness of what I believe that we then even water that down. I've seen so many people, even priests, religious bishops, who when they get asked the direct question of like, why Jesus have, it seems like they've been so gun shy about like just saying, because he is who he says he is, because he is truly God and he has died for our sins and he's risen from the dead because we often, I think, uh, start 
by sharing our faith with people who have not yet given us permission to have that kind of conversation with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have to have that. The hearts have to be open to each other, right? Before you can you can offer that that beautiful treasure. Yeah, and there's and there's a there's a level of respect I think that I had to learn in the sense of like I thought, of course I'm respecting you. I'm telling you, I I don't really respect you. I love you. That's why I'm telling you this uh, this truth about you know the faith. And but someone could say, yeah, but I never like asked you to, or I never gave you permission to. And so now what it's yeah, I, I this quote a friend said once. Um, unasked for advice is always criticism and I thought oh hmm. that's oh, I, whether that's, that's true good. or not is one thing but it feels like it <laughs> unasked for advice is always criticism I'm just trying to help you like well uh, I haven't yet looked for help from you so maybe wait until I look for help I mean, is that yeah so well that was that was I great advice father through, and we asked for it so it's not criticism <laughs> <There it is. laughs> yes <laughs> Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversations God wants to have with each of us this weekend. As we celebrate both the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, on January 1st, and the Lord's Epiphany on January 2nd. The two feasts are intimately connected to the celebration of Christmas, and therefore to each other. They feature, respectively, the visit of the shepherds to Bethlehem, and subsequently of the Magi. And so I would like to focus on the dialogue God wants to provoke and deepen in us through the gift of both feasts. We begin with what we'll hear on Friday night and Saturday at Mass for the Holy Day of Mary, the Mother of God. It's important for us to ask why the Church has us begin each new civil year pondering Mary's motherhood. Most of us, on the vigil of the feast, December 31st, naturally give our attention not to Mary, but to the last year, as we look to what the year about to finish has brought us, the good memories, the difficult crosses. We recall with joy the happy times, the births, the weddings, the reunions, the achievements in school or work or elsewhere. We also remember with some sadness the death or suffering of loved ones, the pain of relationships and friendships that have broken down, the personal and familial consequence the pandemic, the economy, and other things have brought. The reason why the Church proposes that we mark a Marian feast on this vigil is precisely because, as we see in St. Luke's recounting of the Gospel of the Visit of the Shepherds, Mary teaches us how to contemplate things in our heart, to treasure the graces, to ponder the crosses. All the events of 2021 are meant to be taken to our prayer, to be brought to the Lord, to be internalized in a way that binds us evermore to God. But few of us profit from the events of our life in this prayerful way. Mary, the Mother of God and our Mother, is looked to by the Church each December 31st as an icon of how to let, not to let so many of the graces of the past year just pass away. Likewise, on January 1st, most of us look ahead wondering what the new year will bring. We look forward with excitement to graduations or retirements, to long-desired proposals and weddings, to the birth of kids, grandkids, or younger brothers and sisters, to pilgrimages and vacations, to new friends, experiences, and loves, hopefully to an end of the pandemic and its many hardships, and to a better year economically for ourselves and so many who we know are struggling. 
We also might look ahead with a little trepidation, hoping that certain things will not occur, like a terrorist attack, or a fire, or a burglary, or a drunk driver, or a terrible call in the middle of the night by a hospital or the state police, or the funeral of loved ones. As we look forward blindly, not knowing what the year will bring, church also has its focus on the Mother of God, because she shows us how to approach all of these events with a trusting faith that the father of her son is the Lord of history, and that everything, both what seems adverse or propitious, works out for the ultimate good for those who love God. The Blessed Virgin Mary helps us to look back on the previous year and ahead to the one that's beginning as believers, as those in communion with the Lord should and do. She shows us how to be grateful and hopeful, how to live not merely through the passing of time, but live in the fullness of time, in the fullness her son brings. These are key lessons for the Christian life, lessons on which we need constant reminders, lessons that are particularly important on pensive occasions like New Year's Eve and Day. That's why going to Mass in this solemnity with Mary to thank God for the grace of the past year and for the blessings he has in store for us in the next, most especially the gift of his presence and accompaniment through the peaks and valleys, is so important. It helps us, like Mary, to reflect on all of these events prayerfully in our heart and, like the shepherds, to return from Mass glorifying and praising God for all that we've seen and heard. Mary also teaches us how to ponder the meaning of the visit of the wise men to Bethlehem, which is the consequential conversation the Lord has with us in the Gospel on the Epiphany, as we stay with Mary and Joseph after the shepherds leave and receive the Magi. The wise men show us several lessons that can become excellent New Year's resolutions to help us live 2022 as a true year of the Lord. First thing we learn from the wise men is the importance of seeking God. When they saw the star at its rising, they not only interpreted that God was trying to communicate something to them in general, but that God was specifically heralding the birth of the newborn king of the East, who would be a universal king. The stars were incredibly important agents. 2,000 years ago in the uh, deserts of the Middle East and on the seas, people were highly dependent on the fixed stars in the sky as references for direction. They firmly believed that God had made them this way for that reason. Whenever anything happened in the sky that was new, like the appearance of a comet or a meteor shower or planets or stars shining more brightly, the ancients thought that it had to bear some message from God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. When they saw this star at its rising, they didn't respond as curious astrologers, but as those who hungered to find what they sought. Led by the star and their simple faith in its meaning, they went on a journey toward the Holy Land. We don't know exactly how long their pilgrimage took, but the gospel suggests it wasn't brief. After Herod asked them the time of the appearance of the star, and then a short time later, after they didn't return to him, he proceeded to kill every boy in Bethlehem under two. That They made a journey of likely more than a year each way, because they believed God was speaking to them through a star. 2022 is an opportunity for us to make a commitment to seeking, finding, and loving Christ, who has come into the world, and speaks to us far more clearly than by a star in the heavens. Second thing the wise men show us is that the life of faith is a pilgrimage. They were ready to move, even though they must have had good lives where they were since they could afford a long journey and precious gifts at their arrival. They accounted being with the newborn universal king more important than staying put. They were willing to leave everything behind and make a long, difficult journey, following the star they had seen in the east. They also show us that this pilgrimage of life is not one we're supposed to make alone. They knew that in order to make the destination, they needed each other. 
But more than that, they wanted to journey together. Similarly, the Catholic pilgrimage of faith is not a do-it-yourself thing, but a family journey. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about us. We need the help of others in the search for God as we pass through the various deserts, hills, and valleys of life. Spouses need each other. Children need their parents. Parents need their children. We all need our friends and spiritual siblings. We belong, as we pray at Mass, to a pilgrim church on earth. We're called to live and move in communion, trying not to leave anyone behind. 2022 is a time to commit to that pilgrimage together with others. Third, the Magi show us that we need to be guided on the path of faith. They got to Bethlehem because they allowed themselves to be guided by the star. They were attentive and obedient to the guidance God was giving. Likewise, we all need to be guided. God guides us in sacred scripture. He guides us through the church. He guides us by the saints. He guides us in prayer. To be guided means we're not trying to control the destination and the route. We're willing to accept God on his terms, not on ours. When the wise men found Jesus, he was far from what they must have been expecting. They likely anticipated to find the newborn king in a palace, not in a stable, wrapped in royal silk, not in swaddling clothes, surrounded by courtiers, not animals and shepherds. Yet when they found him as he was, they didn't turn back. They were willing to let their own categories be changed by God rather than try to fit God into their own categories. God's ways are not as we imagine them or as we might wish them to be. He's different. 2022 is a time to commit ourselves to be guided by God, like the wise men were, like Mary and Joseph were. Fourth, the Magi teaches about how to love God. The greatest gift they gave the baby cheese was not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but themselves. St. Matthew tells us that they prostrated themselves and did him homage. They adored him. That's what we're called to do. The same Jesus before whom they prostrated themselves comes to our altars dwells in our tabernacles. And 2022 is a time to commit ourselves to come to prostrate ourselves and lay ourselves and our gifts in humble homage before Him, as at the same time He, in the Eucharist, seeks to bless us with every spiritual blessing He knows we need to continue our journey. Lastly, lastly, the Magi show us, in short, how the encounter with Christ is meant to change us. St. Matthew says that the wise men returned home by another route, which the great saints of the church have always said points to far more than a detour to evade Herod. points to the fact that they returned changed, differently than they arrived, converted more and more to the new king's ways and categories, to the way of faith, to the journey of Christ-like love. Every encounter with Christ in the Mass and prayer in the other sacraments is meant to be similarly consequential by bringing us into communion with God in life, following no longer our own way, but following Jesus' own path up close. So we prepare for both consequential conversations this weekend, to journey not just once, but twice to Bethlehem. The Lord wants to help us, like Mary, ponder all of these things in our hearts, and to leave glorifying God and transform for the better. At church, we will meet in the Holy Eucharist, the same Lord before whom the shepherds and the Magi prostrated themselves, a small, poor, vulnerable infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. The one who has been with us throughout 2021, the one who will be there for us in 2022, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us therefore go with haste to Bethlehem to adore him. Let us with excitement and wonder try to bring others along with us. God bless you all. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 